This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us here on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hey, Mark. Good morning, Carolyn. So our guest today has got uh, quite the pedigree. Pete Saronis, CEO of Dots and Bridges. And before Dots and Bridges, Pete served as a cabinet level federal CTO, not once, but twice. First at the U.S. Department of Education for eight years, and then at the U.S. Department of Energy for seven and a half years. And before those two, he was actually with the DOD, which I'm not going to give anything away, but he was like, I don't want to age you, Pete, but feel free. You were, you were there in the beginning of things. So welcome to the show, Pete. Hey, I appreciate it, Carolyn and, and Mark. And it's nice to be on the other side of the mic because I have all the respect in the world, Karen, for what you're doing in addition to your other jobs and and incredible pedigree you have. But I love the conversations and uh, it's a treat to be able to tell my story a little bit, uh, at least. Well, your unique perspective on technology in federal agencies, as well as from the commercial side, is it's going to be a great conversation. And I, I just want to start, let's just start with your story. Will you give us an overview of Dots and Bridges, how it came about, and and then, you know, your journey in government to where you are now? Absolutely. And I, I, I tell folks I can do five hours or I can do it in <laughs> yeah, about a minute, but uh, there's about 30, 32 years there wrapped up. Uh, so here we go. Uh, I'm a Washingtonian native. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in the suburbs of, of Maryland, Montgomery County, and went to high school in Washington, D.C. and took me to Villanova University for my undergrad, where I studied uh, liberal arts, communications, wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And uh, I am 54. So those of you looking and watching, I do have a nine-year-old. So a little bit of a late bloomer, four kids, great wife from Pittsburgh. And yes, I have a Australian Labradoodle named uh, Phineas Maximus Aronis. So that is my life, my my family. Uh, but I came out of college uh, and I ended up back here in DC and uh, intern at the Pentagon. You know, I woke up one day and I'm like working in the Pentagon and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Didn't have a plan to go work for government. Didn't know much about it, even though it was in my backyard. But it, it put me on my journey and the time was 91. And I had the chance when I was working for, as a civilian, the, the Department of the Army, uh, to dabble in some of the work that the DARPA community was working on, the internet work, as it was called. And before I knew it, I, I had a bug. I had an itch. I scratched and I uh, was like, this is going to be a big deal. I was that guy typing in on a text-based, character-based, if you will, screen, www.espn.com. And I'm like, whoa, I can see all this news before it's in the paper tomorrow. And I, the itch was there. I, I said, I'm going to go learn this internet thing. And uh, at that point, it was three years at DOD. Uh, I had a chance to move over to the Department of Education and do some computer security work because that was becoming a thing like, wait, if you're going to use this tool, security matters. So we'll talk a little bit about that today and its evolution. But I jumped back to school. I, I uh, enrolled at Johns Hopkins University and got my master's degree in telecommunications. I wanted to know 
how this worked. How do you type something in and then it's there on your screen? And, and that was the coolest education of, for three years. And every time Carolyn and Mark, I'd go back to class, it was like the material we learned was outdated. So for three years, mm-hmm. it was this, like all of us, we were growing up in this IT world. So I finished school while I was going, uh, while I was working. And by the time I came out, Klinger Cohen Act had passed 1996-ish. The federal government had chief information officers, CIOs. You were a thing. You weren't an IT director. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you were actually a C-level. I said, well, maybe that's what I'll be. I tried it, uh, uh, at least went on the path. And I found myself very interested in wanting to leverage what I learned in grad school. And that was well, you got to get into a data center and see how it really works. So I ended up at the Department of Education being a director, but really running the data center with an incredibly talented group of folks that can run circles around me. But they were my on-the-job training experts, firewall guys and gals, circuit folks, server people. And it was a real education on how to learn this stuff, this geek speak, but then have to go talk about it to my federal community. So by the time I was uh, making a decision on, do I want to be a tech guy, like the geeky side, which is a compliment or propeller head, or do I want to go down the management route and stay in this government as I was uh, being promoted, you know, every a couple of years, I got to, uh, to a, an SES status by the time I left. I found myself on a speaking circuit talking about technology. I was asked frequently to work with the Office of Management and Budget, uh, an arm of the White House, the executive branch, to to translate the tech and and why it matters. And I think that's where maybe I was in sports broadcasting, but I definitely love getting in front of an audience and doing uh, a bit of that educational component. So in 08, I felt like it was time uh, to do something different. I was appointed CTO, but in 08, it was like, well, what do they do? What's a CTO? We all know a CIO is such and such. And I didn't care. I called myself a connective tissue officer. I just love bringing people together, convening, having conversations, and never for the life of me uh, uh, act as though or feel as though I was the smartest guy in the room. I was learning constantly in a world that was just moving at a clip. So in 08, uh, I had an opportunity to come over to the DOE and I got to be blunt. It was the coolest and still is job I've ever had. Didn't really know what I was getting into. I didn't know much about the department of energy or the department of science as it's called, but we can speak for hours on just the complexity of that institution, which is not just the Department of Energy, you know, circa 1977, when it was made a cabinet level agency, it was the former Atomic Energy Commission. And it's truly where some of the most, the brightest minds for years, dating back to the Manhattan Project, to autonomous vehicles today, with our national laboratories, um, it's, it's this brain power that if you have a chance to work there or visit, you, you walk out of there just feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to come back. At least I did. And I had a great run. Uh, that was eight years. And I caught my passion and bug there for well, how does all this technology impact humanity? Why are we spending billions of dollars on research and development? And where is it going? And how does it impact me you know, and humanity globally? And in 15, 2015, I, I, I kind of hit that ceiling. I was uh, not in the government for the money. And I realized, well, I'm not going to be able to really go much higher. So maybe I better go out and figure out 
what all this education uh, can do in terms of, you know, hanging a shingle. And I, I started Dots and Bridges, which is uh, we shared in our prep call. My wife gets all the credit for the name because uh, I tried to be cutesy at times. And then ultimately she said, you know, what's the big deal? What'd you do for 25 years? I said, well, hon, I was a dot connecting bridge builder. She goes, be Dots and Bridges. People get that. Connect dots, build bridges. That's what you did. So that was it. And six years and a few months later, I'm living the dream, working my tail off. I didn't retire from government. I miss it. But being here in the Beltway and and having this global community now that whether it's smart cities or critical infrastructure or cyber physical systems, I continuously learn and teach and wherever I can within bandwidth and make sure that um, I'm there for my family first and foremost. I love what I do. So sorry I went over a little bit there. You did not. You haven't gone over. It's That's it's, perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> and perfect. It's, it's a fascinating history, Pete. You've been, so you had the opportunity to have critical roles in government in, in areas that, you know, are really impactful to society today. So helping the greater good, those are certainly two organizations in your roles that are fabulous. And so is Dots and Bridges and how that works. I'm curious to know, Having now been on both sides of the fence, how, how do you think you can help organizations, industry, help us as a, a country and citizens be more effective in that, in, in that transformation from, is it on the dots and bridges side? Is it on the government side? And what are the, what are the, the different dynamics there? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Mark. And I, and I think the short answer is when people say, oh, you're an industry now, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I took an exit off the highway of being a Fed and I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm going to get back on that road. I, I say as of late, I'm probably going to end up back in government again someday. Right. I miss it. There's, there's something about obviously 25 years of why you do it. People use this phrase, you know, I love the mission. I serve the mission. And I dig it. Yeah. I get it. But but the impact of that mission that you're serving or the, the mission impact of what you're doing is, is really what hit me late in my career. I remember waking up one day at the Department of Education and somebody asked me, so all this data center stuff you do, all this technology, you know, how's that helping the office of such and such at the Department of Education? And I, I yeah. honestly was like, I have no idea. And that kind of was the moment where I said, or epiphany that I went, it's one thing to be a tech person, but to know how it's impacting students or teachers or educators right. or rural America really is something I said to myself, if I don't know that shame on me. So when I came to energy, the first thing I did was I'm going to learn this mission. It's going to take a while. I'm going to travel to the national labs, all 17 as, as best I can. And I'm going to understand why do all these agencies, why does the government even exist to serve our country? and the world. So one way I like to, to answer your party question is I, it's a yin yang thing. There's an opportunity for all of us to understand the role of the mission. There are 450 plus agencies in the federal government. There's not 32, there's not 24. And every one of them has a mission from the Smithsonian to the national nuclear yeah. security administration, to the environmental management office at DOE to the USDA. And if you think about that as a technologist, a guy who was sold to for so many years. One of the questions I used to say to every uh, industry partner that came in was, do you know what it is I'm doing in my role in a 30 some billion dollar agency as CTO to serve the mission? I, 
And that's when I realized there was a gap. I'm translating why it matters, Mm -hmm. how zero trust can impact our nation's 16 critical sectors, how distributed energy makes sense and don't make it about fossil versus renewable. But the technology, the one thing I say is never the problem. It's how are we implementing it? And does your C-level or the people in the data centers in the basement or the outsourced folks at these big, large institutions, do you know that they're the ones keeping the lights on? Technology is agnostic. How you explain it to people yeah. is critical for, you know, in terms of adoption. And if we don't do it, I think that's where the inertia is created and it takes forever for us to realize the benefits of what technology's promise is. Pete, you've said something a few times. I think actually what your focus is, is how do we make life better for our kids, for our country, for the world? You actually mentioned smart cities and I'm fascinated by the idea. And I think that from what little bit I've read, there's a lot of potential with the smart cities to start to solve or to solve a lot of our I, I'm, I might be reaching too much here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you help me. But where I'm going with this is I think the smart cities are a, a big step towards our environmental problems and improving our lives for our, ourselves and for future generations. Can you talk about smart cities, what you did in Department of Energy with them, and, and even just start with what is a smart city? Technology, humanity, and culture. It's interchangeable. Technology, we know we need it. Mm-hmm. Humanity, we want to live longer. I, I, I know we won't be here forever. We're not in the era of the matrix, from what I understand, sure? even though great as far as you know, I know <laughs> the machines, uh, that's the futurist comment. But, but there's hope. We're living longer, but we need our air clean. We need our water treated properly. We need our cars to be safer. Uh, I'm looking at my list here. You brought up smart cities. What makes up a smart city? Well, there are 16 sectors, if I may, that are deemed the critical sectors whose assets, systems, and networks, whether physical or virtual, are considered so vital to the United States that their incapacitation or destruction would have a debilitating effect on security, national economic security, national public health or safety, or any combination thereof. Straight from the DHS CISA website, There are 16 sectors that everybody should be aware of that should relate to our lives. Energy sector, food and agriculture, financial, government facilities. Those are the foundations for cities. It's our streets. It's our water. It's our air. You know, we love when we get a, at least I do, a snow day. But then when you can't shower or you can't eat or you can't get food, then you realize that Mother Nature is in control of some of this. And mm-hmm. why are we not a more resilient city? We saw it happen in Texas last year with the freezing and people died, Carolyn. Like the goal is safety, public safety. I always say bad stuff happens. We realize how uh, resilient or non-resilient, uh, how we need to improve when a bridge collapses or somebody says, how did we not know? Or a tsunami hits. So smart cities don't, one day appear. A smart city is not smart because you put a sensor on a traffic light. Uh, A smart city is people getting smart from city official to uh, obviously those that have to make the investment in the technology to then deploy it and then to figure out where's the data? How do I distill it? Is it protected? 
Because yes, the world we live in, data is the new oil. Data is the fuel. Data is uh, compromised. And when that happens, we saw what happened in Colonial this year. We can shut down a, an East Coast yeah. pipeline because of mm-hmm. ransomware. You know, Carolyn, it, uh, smart cities eight years ago was more like smart grid. How do we make the grid smarter? How do we put technology on our power grid so that it stays up longer? And when bad things happen, uh, people don't freeze to death or there's a blackout and there are looting uh, instances or traffic accidents. The word smart uh, in quotes is something I put in front of a lot of things, smart agriculture, smart water, smart air. It's really just the application of technologies and sensors to communicate, to tell us in real time where things are at risk. I'd like to think that our most critical sectors, that critical infrastructure, that $1.2 trillion is now being made available as a result of the infrastructure bill, will go towards making sure that the very things we need, the water, the air, the food, the bridges, the planes, trains, and all, are safe. So to be a smart city, is it they have to check the box that they're monitoring, that they're being smarter about critical infrastructure and at least you know, three or four different areas. I, I still am unclear, like how you get qualified as a smart city. Well, it, it, it's, it's, there is no single definition. Uh, if you think of smart cities is like I said, it, it's the people mm-hmm. is it, it's the, it's reexamining the process by which we do certain things to know how can technology make it better so that I'll just use an example of potholes. There's a great company in Pittsburgh, robot road robotics, that with a phone, you know, takes pictures, sends it into the cloud, and they're now detecting where all the potholes are and why are some repaired overnight and others don't get repaired. It's about equity, societal and economic value. A smart city, Carolyn, yes, it involves tech, but it involves people becoming smarter about the tech and how and what those risks are and implications of deploying it in a city. And, is there oh, a green component or is it more about being resilient as a city? Like, Great question. Um, there's, I like the word sustainability and resilience mm-hmm. a lot. Um, you bring up a great point. The reason there's this, let's look at distributed energies and microgrids and low earth orbit satellites, and let's, let's use wind power. It's just to say, if the coal burning and the nuclear power, it's not one or the other. It's we need a resilient grid so that when it goes down, it doesn't stay down. Diversity. We can, yes. And that's, mm-hmm. Not sustainable in, I think, the, uh, oh, sustainable, I think, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon footprints. Yes and no. It's like, we don't want it to be down for a long time. And that's why you'll see these days that cities want to be smarter, secure, sustainable. And on the flip side, it's reliable, resilient, flexible. How do you do that, to your point? We have to look at the integration of renewable and fossil fuels and nuclear power. And at the end of the day, you flip a switch on, you want the lights to turn on. You turn on your water, you want it to be clear, not brown. You get in your car, you want to know that, you know, even if it's not your fault, this, this, you know, getting notified in your car turning off before there's impact, technology is, is, is paramount and underpins that innovation. So Pete, you alluded to the uh i think i think you alluded to the executive order related around zero trust yep and 
I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion on how you think government agencies and industries can best support zero trust to help prevent, you know, future vulnerabilities such as Log4J and stuff like that. Yeah, well, the, the executive order for anybody watching, 14028, uh, it, it, is, uh, it hits on a number of, of things. I mean, people say yeah. because in the title it's cybersecurity, but, but I would encourage you to read the executive order on securing the nation's cybersecurity, um, the cybersecurity framework at the NIST, the CSF, which is another one, Carolyn, if you throw out some links later, is, is the whole, how do we think about um, managing risk in an environment? Uh, Industrial control system security is also discussed, and, and NIST is working on some documentation. But yeah, zero trust, uh, it's interesting. People think I can go buy that. It's a framework, right? It's a security <laughs> model. It's a set of design principles. How do you architect something that that basically says uh, we, we don't necessarily know what to trust or not? We have zero trust. So you put in, based on your mission, Whatever you need to to mitigate risk, you mitigate risk. You can't eliminate it. So zero trust, cloud, analytics, artificial intelligence, um, all of it's right there on the first page. And while I think cybersecurity, this is just me speaking, if they didn't have it in the title and just had executive order on securing our nation, you, you don't make it about just cyber. You make it about cyber and physical and network security. But it's a great read. And all you need to do is read the first page and go, I see what their intent is. And it came out literally the week the Colonial Pipeline happened. So go figure yeah. the, the, the so, impetus behind it. So for the government listeners, government agency listeners, and those industry partner listeners that are out there trying to figure this out, because there's a lot of us out there trying to figure out how we can best deliver on these types of things. Any uh, suggestions? To help uh, bring us all together, yeah, I, 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 I think if I'm if I'm going to respond, uh, hopefully the right way is is I, I try to say think about the mission. Back to Carolyn's initial point, what what's the mission of agencies and within agencies? What's the why am I selling? Am I selling to the mission? Yes. It, yeah. What problems that I know they have? I don't need somebody to tell me. I used to be like, you can go read a GAO report, an IG report. You can read you know, whatever newspaper you want and find out, you know, our country in a, and across those 16 sectors is at risk. And if you think you have a product, and I think every product's unique. One of the things I do today is technology diligence for all kinds of companies, from market forecasters to, you know, federal colleagues who just want to say, Pete, what does this mean? Do I really need this? Well, the government spends $93 billion a year on IT support and services, and it's a, they're going to buy. You know what the best thing an industry partner could do is help them implement that little solution or two that they have so that it says it's not about ripping and replacing, Mark. It's about complementing the existing investment. Every company from Dynatrace to, I can list 20 of them, do something special. And if you can articulate that. That's very good advice. And if you can articulate that, everybody wins. The greater good is the government wins because they're making good investment. The taxpayer who doesn't work in government is saying, I'm glad they're putting it to use. And industry, if they're looking beyond the sale, the I hit my number moment. And like I did when I was at education say, I can sell this easily. If I really hone in on the mission that I'm there to help enable, be risk mitigated, more secure and add value to the constituency, which is the residents in our country. So, you know, 
I find that if there's a, a wisdom pearl or a pearl of wisdom, I read as much as I can. I always read in government and I found that to be, there's always something I can learn and a question I can ask. I think, I think most people don't want to read because, you know, quantum computing sounds scary or, you know, AI and machine learning. What's the difference? Eh, who cares? It's all, I just say it and people know what I mean. Um, there's truth to that. But I say it, you might surprise yourself if you just read more, if you're selling into government and if you're a government person, if, if you read more, I think the conversations, the transactions, the seeking solving that I talk about um, is much smoother because you're really trying to sell into the agency mission to make somebody like myself, my job was CTO. My job was to be your in-house consultant, your advocate. But if I couldn't get it from you, I had to go learn it myself. And even then I'd have more questions. You could see where this just, everybody loses when there's not a, are we all in it together? Because you could still hit yep. your number. You can still, you know, help Pete Saronis or somebody, you know, do his job more effectively. It's about leaving an impression. And I think that if we keep that humility, credibility, authenticity, attribute or attributes, in whatever we do, you know, you're going to be successful. And, well, and I, I love what you said, Pete, and you've said it several times. And I think to boil it down, just to remember that we are all in it together. We all really do want the same thing, right? We want to have clean water, be happy, have, you know, a good world to live in and for our children. And I mean, that's the mission. So we're coming to the end of our time and I want to make sure we get to our fun tech talk questions, which are just kind of quick rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, and I'm going to lead off on this one because you talked about reading. This is one of our tech talk questions. I mean, give us, give us your reading list, give us your top three, top five, whatever you want it to be. What, what do you, what do you yeah. recommend? Um, and I also want to know what you read for fun because that's probably what I'm going to read. I read everything and anything I can. I read the Wall Street Journal every day and definitely on Saturdays um, because I, I grew up thinking it was like only for, for people who deal with money, but, but there's so much. And when I read, I, I try to say, well, how can I correlate this thing about the banking industry to something that, that's happening in another part of the world? And that's just what I do. I, I connect the dots in what I read. So newspapers that I find are you know, good sources of information that I will verify and validate myself. Um, I find that to be helpful. People ask me about books, uh, tipping points, a book I read when I came uh, out of government. Book. And mm -hmm. when I saw that a connector was a thing, I said, Malcolm Gladwell, you are the man. Because uh, I said, that's what I do. I make change happen through people. I felt a maven making change happen through mm -hmm. information. You know, to me, that's reading, learning, knowing, and while not coming across arrogant, but saying, I think I can explain this to somebody and bring somebody together. And then, you know, being persuasive. So that book really spoke to me. Uh, the Entrepreneur Roller Coaster is what kept me from jumping right back into a job uh, with a paycheck because when I was scared and nervous, um, I think I read in it that Oprah Winfrey or Bono or Branson or one of the folks that they highlighted said, you know, nobody makes money and is successful not working hard. So I read um, information uh, that I then have to think through and say, hmm, who can I verify and validate this with? I read tons of stuff that comes out of GAO. I read tons of stuff that comes out of the IG because 
It's factual. It's right there. It's in public view. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm a diehard sports fan. I'm a Knicks, Phillies, Dolphins, and Islanders sports fan. So my youngest now is like a stat kid. And it's like I was when I was young. So I used to read the newspaper and talk to my friends, um, you know, the next day at school. But, but you know, Carolyn, I, I'm not like my wife. She can read a book a day. Um, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Love that book. It's not what I thought it was. Um, I'm a big fan of the, the thought of the day. You know, that's just something I need reminding me and grounding me that that uh, that I'm not anything great. And that's that's just what keeps my my fervor and appetite for I want to learn and I want to teach and I want to help, whether it's my mother-in-law, my brother or all my college buddies who 30 years later on our golf trips are like, I still don't know what you do, man. (laughs) <laughs> and I have to explain, uh, uh, well, it's been a journey. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a, a short answer um, there. That's great. That's great advice. All right, Mark, we get one more Tech Talk question. You get it. All right. And by the way, Jay writes the man. Oh, love Jay. Jay is so Villanova. But yes. And this is coming from a, a Wahoo who thinks the uh, – the uh, the sun rises and sets with Tony Bennett. So they, hey, Tony's <laughs> Tony is. I mean, you. It's they're they're one in the same, man. I mean, they are. Yeah, very cool cats, both of them. Um. Okay. He, he, here you go. Um. What do you think the next big leap in tech will be for us? Yeah, I think it's this concept to your point earlier about um, uh, being able to have information at your fingertips. You talk to anybody about, um, it's not the AI and the ML, it's all that. It, it's, it's, it's having information so we can make decisions to save lives. Mm. You know, I think mm. of when the tsunami hit, I didn't really even know what one looked like. I just remember the destruction and the pictures. And then somebody said, if we only had sensors on the buoys, if there were even any, we could have alerted people and they wouldn't have been standing on the shores. Mm-hmm. I think of autonomous vehicles where my mother, who's over 80, and people have said, when you get up to the age, well, you know, you're kind of grounded. You're going to be in a home versus why isn't there an autonomous vehicle where I could say, mom, hop in that car and go see America. Yeah. I think that yeah. technology is going to provide and is freedoms uh, for humanity, freedoms in the sense of being able to do more, not just saying, you know, uh, we can't or, or we're limited. And with that, with that innovation that I think every futurist who, you know, not by definition, do I declare, you know, Ray, Car- uh, Ray Kurzweil is, is somebody I've read and I continue to read his book about singularity, but, but it's, you know, just think about where we've come in a, in a year, two, three, five. And it's, it's the evolution of technology that, is going to make it so that cancer is not something you go, well, I guess I better get my things in order anymore. We're seeing people live longer, more information and people having it at their fingertips globally to collaborate, to collaborate, not, oh, I better take a flight to Johns Hopkins. I think that's to me, even through this pandemic, shown that we come together, we can figure stuff out. It takes a village but technology is never going to be the problem. It's can we get out of our own way? Mm-hmm. And I do think that autonomous, whatever, smart, whatever, uh, it is here. And five and 10 years from now, we're going to be, you know, 
sitting in cars that are driving themselves and having coffee. And I'm not going to be sitting on the beltway saying, dang, two hours to get into DC. So I do, I think that, um, uh, internet of things, the industrial internet of things is, is why we're putting $1.2 trillion into our economy. And I think that all of that can happen that you just mentioned. If just like you said, we get out of our own way. But thank you, Pete, so much for your insight today. It's been a great conversation. Errol, thank you. Thank you. No, both of you. I, 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 I have lots of respect for you both and letting me suck the air out, but I could tell you're both passionate. <laughs> and even in the prep calls we had, uh, it means a lot. And thank you. And I'm grateful. Well, thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining. Um, please share and smash that like button. And we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.